I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. Thanks for joining me again on the Cottage Life podcast. It's great to hang out with you. This week, we'll be chatting about something that so many people have asked me about over the last few years. To say that cottage real estate has been a hot topic is underselling the situation. I'll leave the market forecasting and chatter about how hard it is to find a cottage to buy or rent aside for now. Instead, I'm going to chat with one of our longtime contributors, the writer Philip Preville. He wrote a story for us in the spring 2023 issue, investigating what's happening to our rural communities now that so many new cottagers and ex-city dwellers are flocking to cottage country. What does this influx of people mean for development? for rural infrastructure, for the culture of the countryside. What he found out was really interesting and instructive. After we chat with Philip, we'll listen to another essay from the archives of Cottage Life from author Marcy MacDonald. She wrote it as a reflection on cottage culture at the time of Canada's 150th anniversary. It's a beautiful essay and one that will get you in the cottage frame of mind wherever you are. This is the Cottage Life podcast, where every day is the weekend. First up... A word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Listen, we all have a favorite cottage moment. For me, it's waking up early to a misty lake, launching the boat, and being the only one out there. Unfortunately, the mosquitoes like to keep me company while I'm catching dinner. So to stay focused on the fish, I use Off Deep Woods Sportsman Insect Repellent. It uses DEET for up to eight hours of non-greasy, stain-free protection against mosquitoes, ticks, black flies, and deer flies. Keep it in your tackle box and off your bait, and you'll have one less reason to sleep in and miss that sunrise on the lake. A tight housing market, an influx of retirees, and of course, the remote work revolution have led to a booming growth in cottage country. In this year's March-April issue of Cottage Life magazine, we asked award-winning journalist Philip Preville to investigate how rural areas are faring in light of all these new residents who are moving in. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I'm going to start this interview in something of an unusual way, and that is to talk a little bit about my own experience. Here I am having you on as an expert, and I'm going to tell you stuff about my own self. But um, really, it's germane because it was the genesis of this story. And that is last summer, I was in Westport, Ontario, which is where I grew up cottaging and where I have many, many uh, family members and deep roots, as I've written about many times in the magazine. And uh, we met for a little family reunion, and we went, we went to a vineyard of all places, which I think is telling in itself, but a little vineyard that has opened up sort of in the last decade, I'd say, in town. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got to chatting as we, as we went up towards the vineyard. We passed a new development, which is essentially a subdivision. And this is a town of 700 people. Like, that's, that's how many, that's what the sign says, welcome to Westport, 700 people. So to have a subdivision with two dozen houses is a pretty big deal in, in that context. Uh, so, you know, it really did get my attention to see all these new houses being built as I went to the vineyard. And so, of course, you know, chatty Kathy, me, I, I was asking the waiter, you know, what's the deal with all these new houses? And he said, oh, yeah, it's this new development. And I said, well, how do you feel about that? You know, he's he had already told me he'd grown up in a town nearby and he's like sort of a life lifelong resident of the area, young guy. 
And he said, you know, I think it's great. Like, it's great. People are coming. And I guess it's jobs, you know, creating these houses. And, you know, there's more people for our economy. But, you know, I'm really nervous because the next thing you know, you can't get the vegetables you want in the supermarket. And then, you know, they're putting in more parking and they're having to pave over the park. And then the next thing you know, there's a Walmart on the corner and Westport's completely gone. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a pretty quick progression that he's describing. However, in the context of what's happened over the past couple of years, it's perhaps not that unrealistic. So that experience got me to thinking, we should really investigate this. And then I thought of you because you are, um, you know, one of our top writers and, and, you know, great investigative journalist, but then it also kind of the perfect person because you have personal experience in this exact, um, in this exact area. Sure so tell do. me a little bit. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your own experience at the cottage, your fairly recent new cottager. Well, it's a very interesting story from, from, from our part. I, that, that story about Westport is fascinating, by the way. And yeah, it's a bit apocalyptic, but might not necessarily be all that far off. We'll get into that a little later. My, <laughs> my story is this. We went looking for a cottage up in the Huntsville area back in 2019, uh, before the pandemic. And what we found this place that, you know, was amazing. It was uh, really remarkable. It was all by itself, surrounded by trees. It wasn't on the water, backed onto a golf course. But beyond that, it was just wilderness all around. Um, but it, it wasn't a rural property. It was actually a, a, a subdivision of the town of Huntsville with hundreds of lots for sale that had been for sale for years, but that hadn't sold. Uh, and the property we were looking at was one of the original homes that had been built on the subdivision. There were only four homes on the street. And so we thought, this is great. You know, we, 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 we made an offer. It was accepted. We bought the place. And we were like, this is great. We've got, you know, total rural uh, wilderness, uh, bucolic, uh, Ontario, uh, cottage country all around us. Um, but but we also have full municipal services, right? We didn't we didn't have a septic tank, we didn't have a well. It was all municipally serviced. We had garbage pickup on the street, even though there were no other homes on the street. And we thought this is great, you know. And and we knew that eventually it would turn into a full fledged subdivision. But you know, the properties had gone unsold for years, and we figured it would last for quite a few years more. We thought we would have it all to ourselves for another three to five years. And then the pandemic happened, okay? And it's a, like the, the transformation was literally overnight. You know, uh, those lots, when the pandemic was proclaimed in March of 2020, those lots were still all for sale. Uh, we went back home to Peterborough. We settled in for a few months of, uh, of lockdowns. We went back up in June and so many of the lots had already sold, like, like there were precious few left for sale. And some just, of them just in a few months, just, just in literally a in a few months, some of them were yeah. already being cleared by September. Uh, nearly all of them had sold. Uh, uh, the construction had begun. Um, and now, like, you know, like there's eight new homes on the street, there's eight more under construction. This isn't stopping anytime soon. Uh, that subdivision is going to be built up, you know, probably within the next year. 
And, you know, and for us, like, you know, like, oh, oh, like, you know, bird song and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and fresh air suddenly was like, you know, beeping backhoes and belching diesel and, you know, and we can't like, I, I don't mean to complain. It's still a beautiful property. We still love it up there. We're still going to go up there. We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're getting some wonderful neighbors. Right. But, Just like Westport, still a beautiful place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the, 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 I really want people to understand as they listen to this, what really struck me was the scale of and the speed of this transformation. Right. Because this is a, that, like that's a that's a lot of people ripping up stakes from wherever they are and putting them down here in Huntsville. And that's a, that's millions and millions of dollars in construction. That's millions of dollars of real estate changing hands. That's, you know, neighborhoods from wherever these people came from, because they're not the only ones moving into Huntsville or moving to wherever. So that's neighborhoods in the big cities where they've come from being, you know, in upheaval with neighbors leaving. All of Ontario is kind of resorting itself right now in terms of where we live, where we settle, uh, the lifestyle that we're that we've chosen from the big city lifestyle to something more of a of a of a rural lifestyle. You know, but people are building big urban homes. Like these, these are not people are not building little cottages, right? They're building. They're 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 here to stay. They're here year round. Well, they're full time. Like they're 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 looking to really move into the community. So on that note. Um, you know, it's not, as you just said, it's not just Westport, it's not just Huntsville. And I know that you, um, you know, in your research for the article and since we published it just a few months ago, you've, you've got some data that sort of supports some, not just people moving from A to B, but sort of a wave of changes throughout the province. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The, it, you know, this, the, 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 the census data around this is really fascinating, you know, and I think in my article, I mentioned that, you know, the, the places in Ontario with the highest rates of growth are all, you know, sort of cottage country towns, right? It's, it's Collingwood, it's Watsega Beach, it's Woodstock, it's places like that, you know, and those are places that already have, you know, I, they're, they're not time, they're not Westport, right? They're, 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 they're small, big, small towns, I guess, is what you would describe. Yeah. Small cities, yeah, even yeah. small cities, right? They've 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 got some big box stores and whatnot, but you know, I like I've been looking at the data on this ever since this started happening to my subdivision in Huntsville, and even just recently, there's new data out that really helps explain how this works, right? It's it's almost like a game of hopscotch, so, and you have to think of it in terms of. Uh, you know, sort of um, uh, second second cities to Toronto is perhaps the best way to describe it. So places like Kitchener-Waterloo or Hamilton or Oshawa. What's happening is that people are moving from Toronto to those types of cities, you know, by the thousands. Um, and so as they move there, right, and there's demand for housing in those places, then people who live there decide they're going to sell. And they they don't move into the city, they move out to still smaller communities, right? So in the case of Oshawa, there's a huge influx from Toronto. So people in Oshawa move out to Peterborough or Kawartha Lakes, you know, but they also move out to rural Ontario and literally by the thousands every year. Like it's, these are places where, you know, the census data doesn't really track it all that 
all that uh, precisely. It's just areas outside a census metropolitan area, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's, you know, as people move out to these towns, you know, and as I described, like a lot of these towns, you know, and Westport's a good example too. They were yeah, towns that were really, uh, you know, that 10 weeks a year. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, they're not accustomed to having uh, people living year round uh, yeah. uh, you know, through four seasons and, and uh, requiring municipal yeah. services, uh, through the full year. Sure. And you know, you, you, you put it so perfectly in your article talking about having to do with the ambulances. I wonder if you could share that little anecdote. I think it was in the Halliburton Highlands. Yes. Uh, or Algonquin Highlands. Excuse me. That's right. Algonquin, Algonquin Highlands. Algonquin exactly. Highlands. So it was the former yeah. mayor there, Carol Moffat, who I interviewed. That's right. And she just said, you know, uh, our ambulance calls were up 64% year over year in April. And then she said, you know, April, like there's no, there's not supposed to be anybody here in April. No, it's the hardest month to go to the exactly. cottage. April. <laughs> right. So normally, so normally the number of, when they say, you know, it's up 64%, uh, well, you know, like that, it, it went from zero, right? Like, like there were really practically no ambulance calls, but the issue of ambulance calls going up, is you know is like it's 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 like a snowball effect, right? It's a wicked problem. You try and solve that one, you 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 uh, you run into a whole bunch of other problems. Because if your ambulance calls are up sixty four percent, we probably need more ambulances and more paramedics. And if you need that, well, you might need another ambulance bay or a new ambulance bay. And if the and if the ambulances are going to be uh, uh, getting to their calls throughout your territory of this, you know, sprawling rural municipality with, you know, very uh, low population density. Well, now, you know, uh, roads need to be cleared. Uh, uh, the plows need to be active. Maybe you need more plows or you're spending more money on private contractors for plows. And of course, they know, you know, uh, how much uh, work uh, it, they they can handle before they need to yeah. buy a new plow and they got to pass that cost along. And right. so this, like it just, it balloons. Um, yeah, it's a real knock-on effect. It is, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at, uh, you know, if you, you want to stretch it, uh, take the logic to its logical conclusion, you know, when you were a 10-week town, well, you taxed people accordingly, right? You didn't need to charge that much in property taxes because... You know, you didn't have any ambulance calls in the winter. You didn't need a second ambulance. Correct, right? But now you do. And not only that, you know, again, another example that I that I I love is you know landfills for waste. Um, Mm -hmm. When you're when you're ten weeks of the year, uh, you know, you generate a certain amount of garbage, and that's it. Um, But when you've got people there year round. And you're collecting garbage year round, like all of a sudden that landfill that, you know, the municipality bought 10 years ago and thought was going to last for another 10 or 20 years. Well, now it's filling up really fast. Right. And it's not just and it's not just people's household waste. Right. Everybody's buying property, building cottages, tearing down the little 10 week seasonal cottages and building giant. So there's all this construction waste. Right. And that's all got to get put into landfill and, and right. So now the municipality needs to buy a new landfill five, seven, 10 years earlier than they thought. Right. Right. I mean, this is all, in, I mean, this is so interesting and lots of places we could take this conversation, I suppose, but one thing that does pop into my head, and I know you encountered this information in, in your research, but 
the issue of more people moving to cottage country, like so many things, was really put like accelerated by the pandemic. But it was already an issue that many municipalities were rural municipalities were grappling with because there's this influx of retirees over the last, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I think you spoke to Terry Reese about this, who's uh, the executive director of the Federation of Ontario Cottagers Associations, yeah. who was talking about his own lake. I just wondered if you could share a bit about that. Well, uh, you know, th 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 there's a few different types of demographics that are that are moving out, you know, and, and, and Terry told a great story about his lake, you know, that that, you know, just to give an example of the kind of thing we're talking about, right, uh, you mm -hmm. know, that there's there's 600 cottages on his lake, but normally there would never be more than, you know, 100 people around at any given time, right, because mm -hmm. people are using their cottages as they use their cottages, right. But but now, it, you know, there's at, at minimum, there's 300 people around. Uh, there's 500 on weekends and there's people around, you know, all year round. Um, mm -hmm. Now, who are they? Yeah, there's there's a lot of retirees. Again, when I talk about, you know, the example of, the, you know, the, the people from Oshawa or from Kitchener-Waterloo uh, or from Hamilton who decide to sell their property to someone moving in from Toronto and then they move to the cottage. Um you know that they're done in the big city, and uh, and this is an opportunity to cash out and be in the place they love the most, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But of course, that also comes with challenges because as we get older, we need access to hospitals and healthcare, uh, and uh, you know sometimes you forget that one of the reasons you were living in Hamilton is because you have a state of the art hospital not too far sure. away, right? And well, and it's funny you bring up hospitals because, and this is definitely the topic for another podcast, but huge problem right now. I know Minden is closing their ER permanently June the 1st. And that's smack dab in the middle of a huge cottage area in Halliburton. There's tons of cottages there. I know people personally who are fighting this with everything they've got because it's terrifying to be aging in place in a cottage and your local ER shuts down. <laughs> it's a terrifying thing. So I think there's very real impacts it, there. It points to, you know, like... It, it, governments uh, at every level, the province, the municipalities, like everybody's grappling with this. Everything's in upheaval because on mm -hmm. the surface, it really doesn't make sense. Like if your population's going up, which it is in Minden and the areas around Minden and the area that would be serviced by that by that ER, like why would yep. you close it? Good question. I think that's what they're asking. Yeah. That's the, the dilemma that, that retirees have as they get older and they decide to move out. To rural Ontario, but you know the other category of uh, of new year round uh, rural resident are you know are people from the city who you know are just uh, who are part of that work from home trend, right? right. Which is huge, right. Uh, and right. and which is also in flux, right? But but for them, it's like well, you know, if I'm going to be working from home, uh, you know, I don't want to be in a condo on the 14th floor. Right, I could I could be in a much more beautiful place as long as it has Wi-Fi and 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 things that I need, and I can commute, you know, once a week or once every two weeks if I need to be in the office. And of course, that is in flux because now you know you hear especially about big banks and other large corporations calling people back. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, and I've already heard stories of people who. Uh, who who uh, went all in, sold their property in the city, moved to the country, and now have been called back in. 
Well, I mean, it's that's for sure a thing. But there's also another thing that's again was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic supercharged it, which is people who were priced out of the markets in uh, in urban areas and decided, you know what, I'm going to rent in Toronto and I'm going to buy on Cashagawigamog, or I'm and and I'm co- the cottage will be where I put my, you know, put my chips. But then. Um, and I'll use it as any cottager would, but I'll have my little rental in the city. And that was a really common thing. But then again, pandemic work from home, those people were the first to, to flee to the cottage because why wouldn't they, if they had all that space up there. So it's like a, hot, like a lot of little things working together in tandem to make one big problem, it sounds yeah. like. And as I say, you know, uh, the municipalities, as they try to grapple with all of this, part of what they're waiting to see is how much of this is permanent. Like when does it settle down if it settles down at all? One of the most interesting things too, you know, because, uh, you know, after you told me the story about Westport, I called the mayor there to find out more. And Mm -hmm. and, Mayor Robin, Robin, Robin Jones. And, you know, the, the interesting story she told was, was about rental housing, right? Because, you know, like Westport's a tiny community. They've got this new subdivision with these homes, but they don't have an apartment building or, you know, Mm -hmm. a a series of apartment blocks for for rental housing. So as more people move into the community, of course, you know, the restaurants are growing and the other shops are growing and there's jobs, right? But, you know, they're they're jobs, not necessarily for homeowners. You kind of need a a, a local workforce that has a, 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 you know, rental accommodation where they can live. Well, in yeah. Westport, that used to be all the big old stately homes. Uh, you know, some of the old historic properties in the community, these big, you know, 4,000 or 5,000 stately farm homes mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. had since been carved up into apartments. And, yeah, my uncle lives in one of those places. I know exactly well, what yeah, you mean. So, yeah. Yeah. so again, as people realized, you know, the owners of those buildings realized, you know, that you know, real estate uh, values have gone up. It's time to sell. Uh, I'm going to sell. Uh, they sold, but the buyers turned them back into large single-family homes. So that those rental accommodations disappeared, and they haven't been replaced yeah. by anything yet. Yeah, it's again, it's another knock-on effect. So what I find so interesting here, again, you say this in the article, is that these communities, you know, they for many years were facing declining population, although there was sort of an amp up with retirees. But now they're like so quickly the exact opposite problem where they, you know, for a long time were looking to grow their tax base and looking for creative ways to do that. And now they have more people like they need to catch up. You know, it's it's a real it's a real about face in a way. It uh, it turned on a dime for them. Turned on a dime. It really turned on a dime. Right. This, the, the, you know, the Association of Rural Municipalities was always you know, at their annual conference, this was what dominated the, the discussion for years, mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. And I bet they didn't see this coming. No, no, they didn't <laughs> see it coming. Yeah, and, who did? And, who did? Uh, you know, so it's almost like, you know, careful what you wish for. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you one final question. Yeah. If you could give, if uh, you could give one piece of advice to people who are looking to move to cottage country full time, um, into a rural community, what would, what would it be? Oh, uh, you know, I would say get to know your neighbors. I know that sounds silly, but I like it. There's, 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 there's no other way. And, and it's funny, right? Because of course in the city, 
um, we're all uh, a cheek by jowl with our neighbors. We've, you know, we've got these tiny properties. Uh, if you're living in downtown Toronto and people mm-hmm. spill out onto the streets, we don't always say hi to our neighbors there either because social norms in the city are, you know, because we're all li- living elbow to elbow, there's respect to yeah, space. Yeah, we all respect each other's mm-hmm. space. We don't look over each other's shoulder. We don't breathe down each other's neck. When you move to the country, okay, your neighbor is is going to be really far away, like a 10-minute walk away, <laughs> depending yeah. on the kind of property you get. And you're going to need them probably more. Yes, you're really going to need them. You're really going to need them. Uh, you're absolutely going to need them. And you know what? And they're, they're going to have, they're probably going to, if they're, if right, they, they might have different political views than you, just like your neighbors in, in the city. But, you know, like, you're living side by side. Like there's something about it that, that, that can get you back in touch with what it means to have a neighbor and to be a neighbor. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's really important. I love that advice. That, that is good. Well, I mean, Philip, we could really go on and on about this forever. And <laughs> I will say if anyone is interested in sort of getting, um, getting more information for sure, read that article in uh, Cottage Life, which was in our March-April issue this year, 2023. And also we have a brand new, uh, brand new-ish, it's been around for about a year, newsletter called The Key, where we talk about real estate and all these kinds of issues all the time. So go to cottagelife.com and sign up for that. Philip, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk with you and a pleasure to learn more about this. I appreciate your time. This was delightful. Thanks so much. Now, another word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. I've spent a lot of time on the trail, and every backwoods trip is a chance to learn something new. And the most important lesson I've learned is that when you're in nature, you have to be ready for anything. And that's why you'll never see me in the woods without my off deep woods insect repellent. It's non-greasy, it doesn't stain, and it uses DEET for up to eight hours of protection against mosquitoes, ticks, black flies, and deer flies. Pack it for your next big adventure, and you'll be ready to embrace the trail without any distractions. Something I've come to learn while working at Cottage Life is that no matter where they are in the world, most cottagers think of their cottages as their real homes, the place where they feel most moored to their truest selves. Award-winning writer Marcy McDonald might say the same thing. She's traveled the world working as a journalist, but feels most at home on her rock on Georgian Bay. She wrote about this enduring feeling for our early summer 2017 issue, created to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday. Her essay, On the Place That Will Always Be Home, is read here by Carol Schulte. As a kid, I understood early. Cottages were something other people had. Not just for a summer escape, but as a passport to belonging, firmly beyond the reach of a bookish girl from a fractured family growing up amid the orchards flanking Lake Ontario. Later, at a girls' camp on Lake of Bays, the wilderness tattooed itself into my psyche, but I did my best to ignore it. Even as a teenaged camper, then as a counsellor, I preferred to think of myself as a thwarted urbanite who was merely putting in time until I was allowed to hit the big city where I would lead an impossibly romantic intellectual life. It wasn't until decades later, as a foreign correspondent in Paris, staring out the window of my first arrondissement walk-up on a listless July afternoon, 
that I realized I was starved for something beyond that unrelenting cityscape. I think I'm homesick, I ventured to a friend. She asked what I was missing, expecting a litany of family ties or old flames. The rocks and trees, I found myself saying, to even my own astonishment. It would be years and a posting to Washington, D.C., before I got the chance to put that longing to the test. One of my closest friends asked if I wanted to co-rent a cottage with her for two weeks on Canoe Lake in Algonquin Provincial Park. I didn't hesitate. To me, it was a destination as exotic as any assignment in Jerusalem or Tehran. The ancient greenhouse with its swooping screened porch sat on Gilmore Island at the southern end of a lake rife with history. Barely a kilometre from our front dock, the body of painter Tom Thompson had been found, inexplicably trussed in fishing twine. Dubbed Loon's Retreat, that cottage seemed to me the very essence of the country I'd left behind. Its two stories of chintz-decked bedrooms slept a dozen and, over those two weeks, became a hub for the network of family and friends I barely had time to see on visits back to Toronto. One weekend, so many guests showed up that we converted the veranda's sagging ping-pong table into dining space for 20, the latest gossip served up with a stuffed salmon. For that, and many summers to come, Loon's retreat was one of the ties that bound me to Canada. Years later, long after the cottage had been reclaimed by its owners, I was about to take a new job in Washington when a one-time boyfriend asked me to join him on a boat trip from the north channel of Georgian Bay to his family's island on the southeastern shore. I said yes and instantly regretted it. I was running out of time to pack for the States, where I felt my career lay. And besides, what was the point? Our romance had been over for years. But, as it turned out, I was wrong on both accounts. Somewhere between the soaring fjords of Killarney and the veins of pink quartz swirling around his ancestral chunk of rock, I realized that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with this man. That also meant being wedded to the place where he felt the deepest roots, an airy grey cottage that his maternal grandfather had erected in the 1930s, just south of Go Home Bay. But this second capitulation was not quite as swift. Georgian Bay terrified me, its topography so stark and unforgiving, its fabled storms sweeping in on a dime, toppling lordly pines and whipping up ocean-worthy breakers that obliterated deadlines for the boat trip back to the marina. And then there were the snakes. My future husband swore nobody had seen a Massasauga rattler on the island for years, a reassurance undercut by the two snakeskins that his late father had mounted by the living room door. Sometimes, strolling warily across the mottled rock, I longed for the blithe greenery of Algonquin Park. In the end, it was the beauty that won me over. The flare of purple from the tiny, brave wild irises that sprang from mossy puddles to greet us each May, and the sunsets, each more glorious than the last, all demanding a ritual evening toast. On the chilly fall night, I looked up to see the Aurora Borealis performing a ghostly dance of green veils across the northern sky. I knew I was a goner. For five years, we negotiated a cross-border relationship. 
centered on that acreage of rock, some of the oldest on the planet. Then, one September morning, on assignment in New York City, I watched as the second tower of the World Trade Center crumpled in a whoosh of breath-stopping dust and realized it was time to go back to that bedrock, my own personal ground zero. On every trip up from the marina, a stone cairn reminds us that Samuel de Champlain paddled these waters four centuries ago, and a framed print on the dining room wall testifies to the fact that A.Y. Jackson once stopped by to paint the island. But beneath the pine rafters strung with the memorabilia of four generations, we are writing some new chapters of our own. My old Canoe Lake pals now count a visit to this island a mandatory annual ritual, and every summer my husband's accomplished niece, nephew, and far-flung cousins still fly back from across the continent to hurl themselves into the channel where their parents and grandparents once skinny dipped. They finger old regatta ribbons, explaining the family lore to new mates, and I've come to understand that no renovation urges can ever trifle too much with that fiercely cherished thread of memory and belonging. On July 1st, we'll get out the dime store flags to deck the dining table on the old screen porch and light some candles to mark the country's 150th. We're not very good at patriotism, but for each of us, it seems clear. This cottage is what it means to be Canadian, to be home. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. If you're enjoying this podcast and you don't know about our magazine, let me take a moment to tell you why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. First of all, the magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all of the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're enabling us to make this podcast. Podcast listeners get a special deal. Sign up today using the code cottagelife.com slash pod offer, and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of the Cottage Logbook, a dedicated place to record all of the moments that make cottage living special. All this for just $24.95. Here's the code again, cottagelife.com slash pod offer. While I've got you signing up for things, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast. That way, each new episode will automatically download to your app and will be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And if you're loving it, please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dot.